Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, please, to Genesis chapter 24. Now, this, what I want to speak on today actually covers the entirety of chapter 24. So what I could do is simply read Genesis chapter 24 and give the benediction. But that's not very satisfying to a preacher. So what I'm going to do is read a portion of Genesis 24 and then weave the rest of the story in through the sermon. So Genesis 24. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of all the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of these Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac, or Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto that land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bringest not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from there. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear, free of this thine oath. Only bring not my son again there. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore concerning that matter. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed. For all the goods of his master were in his hands, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, or he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city will come out to draw water and let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher. I pray thee that I may drink. She will say, drink and I will give thy camels drink also, and let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast shown kindness unto my master. Now turn to the end of the chapter, if you will, please, and look at verse 62, and then we'll read to the end of the chapter. And Isaac came from the way of the well, Lechairoi. Lechairoi in Hebrew means uh, something like a, the one who lives and watches me, the one who is and looks at me. For he, dwelt, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide. 
And he lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, the camels were coming. This is the servant now returning with Rebekah. And Rebekah, who was on the camels, and Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I pray that you will brush aside all of the distractions, everything that stands as a barrier between our innermost selves and your divine communication. Come, Holy Spirit that when we leave here today, that we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. When I was uh, in high school, uh, just at the end of Lincoln's second term, <laughs> it hurts me when you laugh at me, um, uh, two boys and I went out to a diner, an all-night diner that was on the highway toward Baltimore. I was living in Maryland at the time. And uh, one of the boys was, was stoned. Uh, the other guy and I were not drinking, but Danny, who was with us, was, was drinking, and he was drinking heavily, which Danny drank heavily, frequently. That's not true. All the time. And... We got to this diner and another boy, a fourth boy came in. His name was Brooke. And Brooke was one of these real quiet boys and he had with him an absolutely beautiful girl. We, we went to a small high school, so we knew that this girl did not go to our school. And Danny said, who is that girl? We said, I don't, it must be from out of town. It's Brooke's day. He said, I'm going over there. I said, Danny, don't do that. That's not a good idea. You're drunk and, and you'll say something stupid. Oh, he said, I'm going over there. So Brooke and this girl got in a booth. We were sitting at the counter. And Danny went in and insinuated himself into the booth beside this beautiful girl and put his arm around her. And I heard Brooke say, don't do that. There was just, how can I say it? There was a sound in his voice. And Danny couldn't hear it. Danny leaned over to the girl, breathing his alcohol-laden voice in this girl, and he said, you are way too pretty to be with this guy. Why don't you leave him and come with me? Come with me. Let's go right now. I've got a car outside. And I heard Brooke say, don't. And it, it had that sound. And I started toward Danny to rescue not the girl, but Danny. I had never heard Brooke say 10 words in a row. He was one of those strong, silent types, powerful, big boy, very quiet, but you always, one, always had the sense, not a person to be tampered with. Danny was too far gone. Before I could get to the, to the booth to get Danny, Brooke, in a motion so swift that it stunned us, reached across the table, grabbed Danny by the front of his shirt, and punched him unconscious into the floor. I saw the manager of the diner go for his telephone and I realized he was going to call 
the police. My friend and I grabbed our drunken, unconscious friend, went out to the car, threw him in the back seat, and squealed out of there. My friend was driving. I turned around and leaned over the back seat, smacking Danny in the face, trying to get him to come awake. And finally, he came away, blood streaming down his face. He looked up at me, and I said, Danny, what was the matter with you? What Couldn't you hear him say, don't? He said, I heard him, Mark. I underestimated the depth of the relationship. I would like to say to you that I believe that is a mistake common both to the enemy of the church and the church itself. That we tend to underestimate the depth of the relationship between God and His church, which is His creation and the bride of His Son. I want to speak today a message of encouragement to you about God's love and concern for His church. Now this, uh, this chapter 24 of Genesis is pregnant with implications for preachers that love typology, of which I am in that number. Old Testament types, that is to say something that stands for something in the New Testament. There are multiple types in the 24th chapter of Genesis. So before we get into the story, let's look at the types first. The first is this. Abraham, the father, obviously is a type for God. Now, when we talk about typology, have to remember no type is a perfect iteration or reiteration of that for which it types. Abraham is obviously not perfect. But he is the father of the story, and therefore he is the type of God. Isaac is the son, obviously a type for Jesus. The servant of Abraham and the servant of of Isaac, that is a type for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit operates in full accord with the will of God the Father. There is no breakdown in will in motive, in plan from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So it's a perfect triune typology. Rebecca, this girl, is the obvious type. The bride of Isaac is an obvious type for the church. Her family in Mesopotamia is the obvious type for the world into which we are born. And the household of Abraham and Isaac and the servant is the obvious type for both the church and our ultimate destination, which is the church triumphant above. Now that sort of sets the scene. So let's look at the story. Abraham calls his servant to him and he says, look, I I want my son to be married, but I don't want him to marry one of these Canaanite women. They're pagans and they're, uh, they're have idolatry. I don't, I don't want that. I want you to go back to Mesopotamia and find somebody from my household. Now, this seems strange to us now that he wants his son to marry a cousin. But you have to understand, as God is moving in the history of the Hebrew people, of the Israeli people, in the early days, he wanted to keep the bloodline of Israel clean. He didn't want to mingle it with the Malachites and, and, uh, Canaanites. So the way to do that, and in, in the enclosed society of a fairly small tributary of life, the Israeli people, 
there was a lot of intermarrying that went on. It's different from today. So don't be shocked with the story of him marrying his cousin. Rebecca and Isaac are cousins. So there is a fascinating uh, entry in the story, which is used only here and then later in the story of, of Jacob, Isaac's son. And it is this. Abraham says, put now thy hand under my thigh and swear to me. It's an odd term, isn't it? It's only used twice in the whole Bible, both here. There's a great deal of controversy uh, in writing about it, all kinds of people who claim to know what it means, um, but it is, it is not in Torah. It's not, a, it's not a scriptural admonition. It's not used anywhere. It's not in the law. It's not in the Pentateuch. It's only used in these two places, which obviously means it probably was more of a local custom than it was about fulfilling something in the law. But what does it mean? Put now thy hand under my thigh. So some writers write about it that it had something to do with, with uh, Abraham's ritual and understanding scripture of, of circumcision and that it was about that. That doesn't make any sense to me, and it's used nowhere else. I believe it was clearly a statement of subservience. So we, we are modern 21st century Americans. When we sit down, we think of sitting on a chair, right? But remember, these people are more like, more like Bedouins. They're living in tents. They don't have chairs. So he's, he's sitting on a, on a carpet. So what does it mean, put thy hand under my thigh? It could mean that as Abraham sits there, that the servant comes to put your hand under the thigh of someone that is sitting, you have to kneel. So he would kneel and put his hand under his thigh. It's a posture of total surrender. You kneel down in front of somebody and put your hand under their leg, you're completely defenseless. You're totally submitted. But let me give you a, another way to think about it, if you don't, wouldn't mind. Jeff, if you'll just come up here for just a second. Here's our security guy, not a person with whom you want to tamper. <laughs> now, now, Jeff, here's what I want you to do. I, I'm, I'm going to ask you, if you will, to get down on your knees and put your palm on the floor, palm up, if you would do that. All right. Now, if I kneel in the palm of his hand, you could say that he is under my knee, but by extension, he is actually under my thigh. So look how I have him trapped. He is completely under me. He is bigger, stronger, younger, and armed. But in this place, in this condition right here, I could slap him silly. After that, I don't want to move my knee. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. So what is the point of all that? It is that the Holy Spirit is completely subservient to God the Father. The Holy Spirit never operates on his own agenda. So what is the primary agenda of the Father in this story? Find the right bride for my son. So the Holy Spirit comes laden with gifts, ten camels laden with treasure, and he goes far away on a long journey seeking and searching. There is a great doctrine 
that we used to preach in the church and ought to be preached again. And it's the doctrine of prevenient grace. Prevenient from the ancient English word prevent. We use prevent now in modern English to mean to stop something. But if you listen to the word pre, meaning something before, vent, an event, in ancient English, prevent meant to get there first. So now if there are two people racing and one, uh, one, we say the one prevented the other one, it means he tripped him. But in ancient English, if racer one prevented racer two, it just meant he got to the tape first. So preventing grace is not grace that stops anything. It's grace that gets there first. Prevenient grace is grace that goes ahead. The seeking and searching grace of the Holy Spirit in direct submission to the will of God to find the bride hidden in an alien society. So what does it mean? It means that there's not a crack house in Atlanta where the Holy Spirit isn't moving, seeking, searching, going in there, trying to find that hidden bride. There, there is no one anywhere under any circumstance that is entirely safe from the Holy Ghost. There is no heart that is impenetrable. There is no soul so calloused. There is no sinner so perverse that the seeking, searching power of the Holy Spirit directly subservient to God the Father cannot penetrate, find, and retrieve. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Prevenient grace. So the servant goes seeking, searching. Now here's a fascinating little part of the story. It doesn't actually translate to, to what I'm talking about, the typology, but it is interesting. The servant prays and he says, Lord, I don't want to find the bride that I want. Look, look up here at me. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> so there's not a teenage boy in this room that would say to me, Dr. Mark, go find me a bride that would be perfect for you. That's not what you want. He says, wisely, I don't want to find the woman I'd choose. I want to find the woman that would be perfect for the son. I want to find the woman that would be perfect in your eyes. So I need a test. I need to know the Holy Spirit says, I want to be in complete connection with the mind of God the Father. So what is his test? It's interesting. He says, I'm going to kneel these camels down. If you've ever been in Israel, you've seen people kneel a camel down. It's actually quite an operation. And they get the camels all knelt around. And he says, it's just about evening when the women will come out, the girls will come out to draw water. And I'm going to say to one of them, can you give me a drink? If she's rude, you'll get your own drink. Who are you? I don't know you. Then I'll know that's not the one. But if she says, not only will I give you a drink, but you drink and have that, and I will draw water for all your camels. I'll know that's the one. Now listen to me. Where are the single girls? All the single girls in the room are online, if you'll raise your hand. All the single ladies, raise your hand. Come on, I know you're hiding there. <laughs> all right, single girls, listen to Dr. Mark. The camels that you water may be the ones that carry you to your blessing. 
Don't ever be afraid. Don't ever be afraid to do that which goes beyond. So when that boy takes you home for Thanksgiving dinner, don't sit on the couch and let your future mother-in-law bake all the pies. Get in there and do more than she asks you. It won't matter whether the boy wants you. Your mother-in-law will say, I don't know who you were thinking about marrying, but I'll tell you who you're going to marry. <laughs> so it's a valid and very practical test. So out comes Rebecca. And the old guy says that to her. Give me a drink. Oh, she says, I'm happy to. Kneel down here and then I'm going to I'm going to pour water for all your camels. Camels, remember, come across the desert. They're thirsty. That's a lot of work to pour water for 10 camels who have just come out of the desert. So he watches her and he says to her, who, who are you? She says, oh, I'm the, I'm the daughter of Nahor. And he says, oh, that's Abraham's brother. This is Isaac's cousin. This is Isaac's cousin. And he opens up one of the treasure chests and he takes out gold bracelet and puts it on her. And it says in the King James Version, an earring. I think actually in Hebrew, it is a nose ring. So he puts jewelry on her. And she's frightened. Think about it. Here's this old dude. Give me a drink. He says, who's your father? She tells him and he starts putting jewelry on her. Well, she's a young girl, she's just a little virgin girl. She runs home to whom her brother, whose name is Laban. You remember this guy, Laban, Laban, a generation later, he's the same conniving, gold oriented, seeking rascal that cheats Jacob, uh, uh, Israel, a, a, a generation later. So this is the first time, this is the prelude to that story. So she comes in and she says, this, this old dude came out of the desert with camels and I watered his camels and look at this gold and all this. He says, well, where is he? She said, well, I don't know. I left him at the wells. He says, you foolish girl. And Laban runs to the well and finds the servant. And I love this next verse. He says to him, come thou beloved of the Lord. <laughs> now I've got a word for the single men. When you go to that girl's house for Thanksgiving Day, rent a car. Don't go in the one you can afford. <laughs> and her dad will meet you at the door. Come thou beloved of the Lord. So the servant comes in and tells the family his mission. I'm here to find, to find a, a bride for Isaac. And there's an awkward moment. And then finally the servant says, look, I, I want to make it clear to you. We are, we are not just asking. Remember, he has 10 camels laden with treasure. And he opens those treasure chests up in the tent of Laban and his fam and Rebecca's family. And he says, my master just wants to give all this. And Laban says, I love the, I love the Bible. Take the girl and go. <laughs> all right. So the first thing is, 
When the Holy Spirit in subservience to God the Father is moving, the bride of Christ is first of all sought. We are sought for. The servant seeking, the servant of the Holy Spirit seeking. You ever hear people say, since I found the Lord? And I don't mind, I don't take offense at that. It just that it isn't right. You did not find the Lord. The Lord found you. And so the bride of Christ is sought. Think what that means. Think how encouraging that is to you. That you didn't somehow or another walk through a dark forest and trip and fall on Jesus. You, you are sought for. You are the, the intentional seeking result of God's love for you and His prevenient grace. But furthermore, you are also bought at a great price. We don't like the idea of bride price. But Travis and I, your pastor and I, spend a great deal of our lives in West Africa. And bride price is still a very real thing, not in modern and Christianized homes, but in, in the traditional African home, a bride price is still the thing. It's very complicated negotiation that happens. Usually the, the boy doesn't do his own negotiation. An older uncle or somebody goes to the father and he says, okay, um, 10,000 CDs and five goats and they, no, I want 10 goats and 15,000. They go back and forth and that bride price is paid a dowry, whatever you want to call it. But in Africa, they call it a bride price. This is a bride price. And look, I want you to notice something. He doesn't try to negotiate. He doesn't open one of the chests and see if he can get by with that. He gives everything he's got. When you think about the, the bride price, that which was paid for you, please understand, God did not try to negotiate. He bankrupted heaven for your behalf. You are not only sought, you are bought at a great price. And that purchase is the entirety of the treasure of heaven. The prince of heaven that not only became flesh for our sakes, but became sin for our sakes, became death for our sakes, experienced the grave for our sake, we are not only sought by the prevenient grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are bought with the treasure of heaven. Now, what about, what about this bracelet and nose ring? Somebody's going to be offended. I know, I know this is going to happen. Somebody's going to be offended if I compare a nose ring to the gift of tongues. But what about all this jewelry? What about all this? Don't you understand the bride of Christ the bride of Christ is not only sought, not only bought, but you are also glorified with gifts. He gave gifts unto men, unto people. We are a gifted. We're not defenseless. We're not nothing. We're not nobody. The gifts of the Spirit. And not only that, the beauty. It's a, those are not just gifts. They're beautifying gifts. God is beautifying the bride of Christ cleaning us up, tidying us up, befitting, outfitting us with gifts. We, we, don't, we don't crawl through this present age defenseless and, and demoralized. Look, we're facing serious times. Nobody's making light of that. It is that in the face of these serious times, the God who sought us and the God who bought us is also equipping us with the gifts and glorification of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's a work of grace. That's a work of grace. 
The grace to find us, prevenient grace. The grace to purchase, redeeming grace. The grace to glorify and to equip us, that is empowering grace. Now, what about her family? We said her family is a type for the world into which we're born. So the phrase, a child of God, is used in two different ways. And we as Christians have to make a distinction about which way we're hearing and which way we're saying. So in a sense, in a broad sense, every person that is born as a child of God, we are descendants of Adam, who is a child of God. We are. So there is a way in which you can say we're all children of God. Yes. But there is another narrower and far more important way of using the phrase a child of God. Unto them that believe, he gave them the power to become the children, the sons and daughters of God. That's a different way of talking about the sons of God, the children of God. That is that we are, we are taken out of the family of sinful humanity and adopted into the beloved family. We are translated in salvation, not just in heaven. We are translated in salvation from the sinful community of the world in which we are born and into the new community of the father, the servant, and the son. We now belong in this family. We belong in this family. But what about this family? What about the family of sinful humanity into which we're born? I'm going to tell you something. If you don't know it yet, here it is. That family will not want to let go of you. That family that is sinful and lost and away from God will be reluctant for anybody in that household to find the way out and the way up. I, I have prayed with people to receive Christ and the number one impediment to their moving on with God is actually their own birth family. I've seen women get saved and their unsaved husbands. Allison, in our first, one of our first churches, not the first, but the, one of our first churches we pastored, a woman got saved, never been in a church before. She got saved the first Sunday she was there. And every Sunday after that, when she drove her driveway out of the car to come to church, her husband stood in the driveway and threw rocks at her car. Because when that person begins to leave, if they want to be different, if they want to rise, if they want to grow, if they want to be pure, then it brings all that under indictment. Would you choose to be with somebody else than be with me? The answer to that is, I love you, I care about you. If you want to get on a camel, get on. But I'm going with the servant. I'm going with the servant. So her family says, the, the, the servant says, we're leaving in the morning. And the family says, oh, no, no, no. We want her to go. We want her to go. But maybe it's a beautiful passage. I didn't read the whole chapter. Sometimes read the whole chapter. Not, not during this sermon, on your own time. <laughs> but in the, in the chapter, it says that her family says, let the girl stay with us one more night. Or maybe ten. So that the world into which we are born naturally will pull on us. Oh, yeah, 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 you... Get saved, that's fine, but not right now. Let's wait till high school's over. Let's just wait till you graduate from college. Just, just one more year, maybe 10. What about three decades? I know what, on your deathbed. Now, the girl then is sitting there, quiet. We have not heard from Rebecca yet, except I'll water the camels. 
This is all negotiation between the servant and Laban. And so the servant says, now listen to this, very important. Let's ask the girl. Let's ask the girl. Now listen to Dr. Mark. That's what it comes down to in the final analysis. Nobody makes the decision to go with God except you. Nobody can hinder you except your willingness and uh, uh, your submission to be hindered. So all of her family into which she is born turns to this girl and says, do you want, do you want to go with this guy? And her answer is brilliant in its economy. She says, I will go. I will go. That's actually the entirety of what it takes to be saved. We talk about the sinner's prayer. I've prayed with people and what we call the sinner's prayer, some variation of it. But the fact of the matter is, now listen to Dr. Moore. If you are sitting in the back row of a church somewhere, lost as a ball in high weeds, and the preacher says, if you're willing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and accept Him as your Savior and repent of your sins, get up and come to me now. If you stand up, step out in the aisle, and drop dead with a heart attack, you go to heaven. Because God knows the intention of your heart. He is not concerned with the vocabulary of the prayer. Now that, that may seem like a, you say, well, that's a, that's a crazy scenario. But the point I'm making is that the, the really thing that really matters is not precisely how you pray. There's no, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says the sinner's prayer. That, that's not even in the Bible. That's American evangelical language. And it's good. It's useful. I use it. I use it. I'm not laughing at people to say that. I say it. I'm just saying that the real sinner's prayer is, God, I want to be with you. I want to be with, I want your son. I want your son. I want to meet your son. I want to know your son. So the decision is made. The girl is sought. She is bought. She's beautified. She's equipped with gifts. Now she begins the journey. She has not yet even seen the son. She has only believed the report of the servant. Which of us has ever met Jesus face to face? But we have believed the report of the Holy Spirit through the power of His Word and the declaration of the gospel. We have believed though we have not yet seen. Do you know what that's called? That's called faith. That's what faith means. I believe this. I believe I will meet Jesus. I believe I will see Jesus. So we say, have you received Jesus? Yes, I have received Jesus. I have received Jesus. I just want to say this to you. He will receive me. I have received him by faith, though I've never seen his face. So they begin the journey. We know nothing about the journey from Scripture. We don't know anything about it. It's not, they're all the way in Mesopotamia, traveling all the way back to Israel on a camel. They're not, they're not doing this in a Land Rover. So they have days and nights on the journey, and we don't know anything about it. But I know. I know because I know something about human nature. All the way, what she's saying, tell me about him. Tell me about, tell me, is he handsome? What color are his eyes? The servant says, he's a first century Jew. Brown. What do you think? Brown. Yeah, but are they liquid brown? 
Is he kind to the animals? Is he gentle with the servants? What's the sound of his voice like? Hour after hour on those camels. And I can just imagine this old servant saying, I mean, this story is, this story is a combination of Old Testament typology and a Hallmark movie. I can't believe that Hallmark's never gotten control of this story. All the way. Now, what does it mean? It means this. Now, listen. We enter into the relationship with the Son that we have not yet seen by faith. The rest of the journey is getting to know more and more about Him. Those who have served Him the longest seem to delight the most in hearing about Him. You ever know? Anybody here, I ask you if you remembered in the jailhouse now. Let me try to get a little more religious than that. Does anybody remember, tell me the old, old story? What is that about? The people that are singing, tell me the old, old story. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about his miracles. They're not people that are lost. Nobody lost as a ball in high weeds is singing, tell me the old, old story. It's the people that have served him the longest and say, tell me about his miracles. Tell me about his love. Tell me about his grace. Tell me about his gentleness. And people say, haven't you ever read the Bible? Yes, I, I, I've read it. I have read it. Tell me again. That's the way this girl is. All the way. The servant is telling her, he's a fine boy. He's a good young man. Yes, he's handsome. Yes, you're going to like his voice. Do you think, do you think he'll love me? Will he receive me? Oh, I promise you he'll receive you. I promise you, because I'm here under the direct commission of his father, and his father sent me to find you. The price has been paid. I promise you, he's going to receive you and take you in his arms, and you're going to love him, and he's going to love you. Oh, her heart is beating faster and faster. One day, they're riding across, and, and she sees a young man sitting by the well. It says meditating. Boys, single boys, listen to me. You want to date a Christian girl? Occasionally, let her see you pray. He's sitting by the well, meditating on the Word of God, probably, looking at the sunset. And the girl says to the servant, who is that? And he says, that, that's the son. And she jumps, isn't this, isn't this touching? Sweet, isn't it? Now, all she's wanted to do the whole journey is talk about him. Now she's suddenly in his presence, overwhelmed with shyness. And she jumps down from the candle and puts a veil across, from the camel and puts a, puts a veil across her face. And it says that Isaac runs to meet her in the way. Oh my gosh, is this gooey or what? <laughs> oh, he says this, there's my bride. There's my bride. The servant has arrived. And he runs, takes her in his arms. They're married. And it says that he is comforted by her. That is, that is a remarkable insight. Now listen to what I'm going to tell you. When you arrive in heaven, listen, just listen to this for a moment. When you arrive in heaven, it says he will wipe, wipe away every tear. You will be healed, comforted, redeemed, all of those things. But think on this. He will also be comforted by your presence. My bride has finally arrived.
So let's close with this. So here's a, here's a girl, a young girl. She's raising a rough family in Appalachia. Just a little barefoot girl. Father and both brothers are moonshiners. And she's out in the garden one day chopping with a hoe, dealing with weeds, hot summer day. And she doesn't realize that a car is pulled up by the garden fence. A nice looking fancy automobile is pulled up by the garden fence. When she turns around and looks, there's a handsome young man there in a, in beautiful clothes, leaning on the garden fence, staring at her. And she says, what are you staring at? He says, I'm staring at the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. He said, I see the sunlight on your hair like a field of gold. He says, what is your name? She says, Sue. Oh, he says, never heard that word said like that. I love your name. He says, come over here a minute, girl. She comes over and he says, look, I, I have to go to the next town. I have to do some business. It's going to take me a while. It's going to be a long trip. I have to, I have to take care of it. But I'm coming back. And I want to know, will you marry me? She says, I, I would love to marry you. I would love to marry you. You have a ring? Oh, he says, a ring. He says, you know what? Pulls a piece of string out and ties it around her hand. And he says, that's a promise of more to come. That's a promise. That's the earnest money. That string is the earnest that I'm coming back. Wear that string till I come back. And I'm coming back to get you. She said, my father's a moonshiner and he's a dangerous man. Both of my brothers are killers. He says, now listen to me, girl. When I pull up in your driveway and honk my horn, you come out and we're gone. So she waits. She goes back to the house. She says to her brothers and her father, guess what happened today? She tells them about it. And they say, oh, you're making that up. She says, look at this string on my finger. They say, you tied that yourself. There's no rich man. There's no fancy car. They laugh at her. They mock at her day after day, week after week, mocking her every day. Well, did the car come? I didn't hear the cor- I didn't hear the horn honk. You're still here. Get that hoe and get out in the garden, girl. One morning, just before daylight, she hears the crunch of tires on the gravel. Her ears perk up. She senses something is happening. She's lying there in her bed when all of a sudden she hears the honk of the horn. Do you think for one moment she wakes those moonshiners up to say goodbye? She's down those stairs in the New York minute and into the car and in the arms of her bridegroom. And she is gone from them. And they never saw her leave. We are not abandoned in this world. We are sought. We are bought. We are glorified and gifted in the world while we live here. We're on a journey, but we will eventually meet him and we shall both comfort each other. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for the joy, the honor, and the privilege to be a part of the bride. God, I thank you. My earthly wife is sitting on the front row of this church. I thank you, God, that the last time I got married, I was the groom. But the next time I get married, I'm going to be the bride. Thank you, God. Thank you. Jesus, I've still got journey ahead of me. I'm not perfect. Forgive my sins and continue to glorify me. And, and I'm coming, Lord. I'm not quitting. In the mighty name, Jesus. If you prayed something like that right then as I prayed, wherever you are, here in this room or at home, I want you to lift your hand up and say, that's exactly my prayer. That's exactly my prayer. I'm coming. I'm coming, Lord. I'm, I'm just like Rebecca. Will you go with this man? You say, I will. I will. I belong to Jesus on the journey and ultimately my destiny with him. In Jesus' name. Now, will you stand all over? We're just going to end this morning with a benediction. So look right up here. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to stand you before his presence without fault and with unspeakable joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before time ever began right now and throughout all the ages to come. And when the battle's over, we'll all wear a crown. God bless you, everybody. God bless you. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.